0: everyone I'm Charlotte and I'm Dina Welcome to The Grim Curriculum.
1: Well, folks, we really hope you enjoyed last week's palate cleanser episode, because this week we're taking it right back to the usual nightmare fuel.
0: Seriously, though, we are really glad that everyone enjoyed our Jersey Devil episode, and we love taking breaks between all of our super serious content to talk a little bit more about lighthearted topics, and we really hope you guys enjoyed listening to the episode as much as we enjoyed working on it.
1: Especially because today we're going to be discussing a case straight out of a horror movie. And
0: we say that? because they actually made a horror movie
1: about this case. Today we'll be starting part one of a part two series on the Texarkana Moonlight Murders.
0: I was so excited to work on this case. Personally, I remember watching The Town That Dreaded Sundown when I was younger, and I didn't realize it was based on a true story, and later I learned that it was, and it just made me even more interested in it. Well, and at first I thought this was a case that I wasn't familiar with, but then as soon as the research started,
1: it immediately rang a bell for me. It's a crazy story because it's so brutal that I forget that it happened in the 1940s. For some reason, I associate it a lot more with like home invasion cases of the 70s, like Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, and stuff like that.
0: I don't blame you at all. Interestingly enough this case has been linked to the Zodiac murders which were very similar but they occurred in the 60s.
1: The Texarkana moonlight murders were a series of four brutal attacks that happened in the course of less than three months in Texarkana during the spring
0: of 1946. By the end of this terrible spree three people would be seriously injured and five would lose their lives. The killer seemed to originally target young lovers,
1: but eventually turned his attention to a middle-aged couple.
0: It is likely that all of the victims were chosen completely at random.
1: And if that doesn't make it horrifying enough, the fact that we may or may not quite know who the attacker really is adds a nice cherry
0: on top to this nightmare Sunday. The attacker was dubbed the Phantom of Texarkana, or simply the Phantom Killer a cold-hearted and dangerous man who's described by one survivor as wearing a pillowcase on his head with the eyes cut out. That's such a horrifying visual. Oh my God. It's very simple but also very scary. It really is. Over the course of the series, we're going to be talking about the attacks themselves in detail. This is not like last week's episode. This is quite possibly one of the most
1: legitimately terrifying cases that we've explored. We'll give you a heads up as always when things are about to
0: get extra rough, and they will. We're also going to be going over the incredibly frustrating investigation and the public outrage that followed.
1: Not just the public outrage, but the sheer terror that the people of Texarkana went through during this time. Gun sales increased and some people who could afford it even moved away temporarily. Many of those who remained behind set up booby traps throughout their homes every night before going to bed as a means of
0: protection. The reaction of the public in this case really shows how one person can truly terrorize an entire town. This really was an example of just an entire area living in absolute fear. In part two, we'll continue the
1: investigation as well as talk about some of the possible suspects that came to light we're going to talk about who could have possibly committed such heinous crimes and the effect that the Texarkana Moonlight Murders have had on popular culture.
0: All in all, we both agree that the Texarkana Moonlight Murders have absolutely left their mark on true crime history.
1: And this is definitely the kind of case that might just keep you up
0: at night. Don't say we didn't warn you. So let's get into it. As always, before we get into the murders, we want to talk a little bit about where they occurred and what life was like there.
1: Also, if you don't fully understand what this area is set up like, it's kind of hard to understand like where this all
0: happened. So there are actually two cities named Texarkana. There's Texarkana, Arkansas located in Miller County and Texarkana, Texas located in Bowie County. Both cities sit on the border of the two states and are considered twin cities. Texarkana also has this amazing hotel called the Hotel Grimm, which like best name ever. We're not biased or
1: anything. No, like, no. It's a huge abandoned hotel that is likely to be demolished soon, but it Kind of looks amazing. It's absolutely massive and really sticks out amongst the other buildings.
0: It is also quite possibly one of the most haunted locations in Texas. So we're definitely adding that on our grim curriculum list of places to visit. I have the absolute, like, worst confession ever that I just need to chime in with. (laughs) And I don't care if I get judged for it. I legitimately thought it was pronounced R-Kansas until, like, <laughs> pretty recently. Arkansas. Like, if you look at how it's spelled, it makes sense.
1: Well, and you're not the only one because Kansas is pretty close. I think it's just to the north of Arkansas. I'm sure many people, especially if... English is not your first language, although English is definitely my first language and I thought it was Arkansas for a very long
0: time. If I can pull the English isn't my first language card, I'm going to pull it right now. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to blame it on that. That's perfect. Fair enough. Now, the reason why we wanted to clarify this is that the murders are called the Texarkana Moonlight Murders. They are called this because the murders occurred in both cities.
1: The crimes occurred shortly after World War II in the year 1946, and there was a definite shift in society that was happening during this time. A lot of men had come back from the war and they were not the same. We'll be exploring that more when we talk about our suspects.
0: It reminds us a fair bit of the Hinterkaifeck series that we did. During the time of those murders, there was a large amount of men who had returned from war, with a lot of trauma.
1: Despite this, the community boasted itself as a nice place to live and the people who called it home felt
0: safe there. That was until the night of February 22nd, 1946. Jimmy Hollis, 25, and Mary Jean Larry, who was only 19 at the time, were out on a date. They had just seen a movie together, but wanted to enjoy more of each other's company. Both Jimmy and Mary had recently ended very serious relationships and were pleased to be getting along with one another so well. It was almost midnight and the two decided to park
1: along a secluded road that was known by locals as a lover's lane. The two enjoyed each other's company for a little while, their guard was down, and they had no reason to believe that anyone else was there. That is, until they saw a flashlight.
0: A figure approached their car. We say figure because the couple was unable to see his face. The man had covered his face with what appeared to be a type of pillowcase or burlap sack. He had cut out two slits for eyes. The couple was shocked to see that this man also had a gun. In this case, straight off the bat, yeah. is just terrifying to me. It's the whole horror movie trope of the young couple parked over in Lover's Lane and they're having a nice time when they're approached by a monster, and that's exactly what happens here. It really doesn't surprise me that they made a movie based off of these crimes, because while this is terrible and the crimes are terrible, it's one of those cases that's just, like, horror movie it, scary. It is,
1: and, like, I, you know, with all stories, the inspiration has to come from somewhere, Absolutely. Right? The man ordered the couple to get out of the car, which they did. Jimmy, who had no reason to believe that anyone would want to hurt them, told the man that he had the wrong people.
0: Later, Mary would recall the man saying, I don't want to kill you, fella, so do as I say.
1: He then held the gun up to Jimmy's head. The man ordered Jimmy Hollis to undress. He still thought that they were a part of some strange prank and tried to defuse the situation. The man then began
0: yelling at him loudly to undress. So he did. Jimmy was then hit in the head with the barrel of the gun twice, cracking his skull both times. This caused him to lose consciousness.
1: The man then turned his attention to Mary Larry, who attempted to offer the man Jimmy's wallet in exchange for him leaving. He hit her with the gun as well, causing her to fall down, and then ordered her to get back up and start running, which she did.
0: Interestingly enough, when the man saw the direction that she was running in, he yelled at her to go the other way. She obliged and began to run away, hoping to find someone to help them.
1: I can't even begin to imagine the level of fear she's feeling at this point. She has no clue if Jimmy's dead or alive. She's in intense pain from being hit in the head. She's bleeding, and now she's running for her life. And
0: she was probably scared to death that this asshole would shoot her in the back of the head as she ran. This story will prove time and
1: time again that reality can be so much more horrifying than fiction. If you heard this story out of context, you probably wouldn't believe that it was real. No, it really sounds like the plot of a horror movie. And
0: unfortunately to say, it only gets worse from here for Mary. To her relief, she quickly found another car. She ran towards it to get help, but her relief quickly turned to fear when she realized that there was no one in it. And it is most likely that the car belonged to the attacker. To
1: her horror, she saw that the man had found her and was walking towards her again. She began to run away, but by this time, between the head injury, loss of blood, and everything else, she just couldn't run anymore, and the man unfortunately caught up to her.
0: He angrily asked her why she was running, to which she replied that she was running because he told her to. He hit her again, and he called her a liar. To me, it seems like whoever this attacker is, they were trying
1: to also, like, psychologically traumatize her as the victim. Like, to give her the illusion of escape, and then punishing her for thinking that she might actually get away from him. It's
0: very cat and mouse. Like, it's very much a game to him. To be
1: like, oh, yeah, go for it. You can run away. I'm just gonna do whatever to your boyfriend. And then to hit her and be like,
0: liar. right give her that false sense of security and then yell at her for being a liar for just doing what you told her to do in a moment of fear fuck and here's a quick little content warning we're gonna be talking about sexual assault really quickly here so please skip ahead like 10 20 seconds if you need to
1: and as our usual episodes go when it comes to this stuff we're not gonna go into it in great detail but it does show how brutal this
0: person was So, he knocked her out with the gun, and then he proceeded to sexually assault her with the barrel of the gun. So... That's a sentence that I never want to hear ever again. That's a sentence I never want to say again. (sighs) I mean, right off the bat, this guy's an
1: absolute monster. It really makes you wonder if this was his first attack, or if it was just the first attack that was reported, because while there was a lack of what you would call organization in his attack, there was a huge sense of brutality.
0: Right? It's hard to tell if this is someone with a lot of pent-up rage who is finally acting out a fantasy, or if this was just part of an escalation that had already started for him.
1: Suddenly, the man ran away and completely vanished as if something had scared him away. Mary was able to find help and the police were called.
0: Meanwhile, Jimmy, who we will remind you, was suffering from two cracks in his skull, regained consciousness. Luckily, an ambulance was already out looking for him and they found him. He lost consciousness again soon after they picked him up. He was taken to a nearby hospital and police would not be able to question him until he woke up a week later. Sheriff WH
1: Bill Presley along with a small team of officers arrived to investigate the scene of the crime. They didn't find anything left behind by the attacker and the scene of the crime did not offer any clues to
0: help find him. And this is where the information regarding the attacker starts to get a little complicated. One of the things we're gonna see time and time again from this man is that no one seems to have reported him quite the same way twice. This includes Mary and Jimmy. Although
1: unfortunately, not many of his victims would survive, so we don't even have that many descriptions to go off
0: of anyway. Jimmy described the man as a white man in his 30s, whose face was mostly covered by the sack.
1: Mary, however, described the man as a lighter-skinned black man. She eventually also added that the sack covering his face also had a hole for his mouth. So,
0: right away, we have two very contradicting descriptions of this guy. There are a lot of things that are going to contribute to him getting away with this, but this is definitely one of them.
1: And we want to say at the end of the day, your brain isn't going to remember things properly when you are under moments of extreme panic and stress. Both Jimmy and Mary suffered head injuries as well as other traumas, and the fact that they had issues recalling the specifics of the attacker isn't all that surprising.
0: Not to mention the fact that he had his face covered by that absolutely terrifying bag, sack, whatever it was. I I hate it. I'm not a fan. I get huge The Strangers vibes from that suspect photo Mm -hmm. that they have, and I just, I hate it every bit of this.
1: So at this point, the police have zero physical evidence and two completely different suspect
0: descriptions. The investigation is complicated right from the start and things will only get worse from here.
1: The police originally believed that this was a targeted crime due to how severe it was. Mary's ex-husband was originally considered a suspect, but he was interviewed and cleared soon after.
0: It's pretty crazy that she was only 19 and already divorced, especially in the South in the 40s. Yeah,
1: I can see getting married young, but then to be divorced, I feel like that was a big, no, no right. Did that surprised me for sure. hmm. Mary kept telling them that she didn't know anyone who disliked her enough to attack her in such a terrible way. But the police refused to believe that this was random, and that it was concluded that Mary likely knew her attacker and that she was hiding information from the police because she didn't want the person to get in trouble.
0: Which is a load of crap. Uh, this, like, oh uh, yeah, off. they had no suspects at this point, and they basically just decided this because it was 1946 and she was a woman, so clearly she was lying. Like,
1: oh that's it's so infuriating like why the hell would she protect someone who had attacked her so violently it
0: really is like it makes no sense and if they had taken her seriously would the rest of the attacks never have happened
1: the police also believe that because this was a targeted attack that the person would not try to hurt anyone again and that this was a one-off
0: thing they could not have been more wrong and this is something else that's going to make this crime so much harder to solve Right from the beginning, both the police and the public would be in denial about the entire thing.
1: The people of Texarkana were very proud of their town and they took great pride in how safe they felt living there. They completely refused to believe that someone could be out there just randomly targeting people in such a brutal way.
0: And it would actually take a really long time for them to accept the fact that there was a killer amongst them.
1: Like a frustratingly long time.
0: It must have been so defeating for Jimmy and Mary. They were adamant about the fact that this was a random attack and they tried to convince the police that this person would hurt someone else but no one would listen to them.
1: And so with that, the case was forgotten for the most part until a month later when the attacker would strike again.
0: Mary and Jimmy were so traumatized by what had happened to them, and rightfully so, that they both ended up moving to different states shortly after.
1: I don't blame either of them for moving moving away. To be honest, I wouldn't blame either of them for never wanting to see anyone involved with the case, including
0: each other. Like, I feel like that could be a pretty harsh reminder of what had happened. There's the trauma of the crime itself and what happened to them but then there's also the trauma of going through something like that and just being called a liar by the people totally. who are supposed to protect you. Totally yeah it's like oh hysterical woman like yeah. you don't know what you're talking about. Gah. It's terrible. The second attack occurred during the evening of March 24th 1946. Richard Griffith, who was 29, and his girlfriend, Pollyann Moore, who was 17, had just spent a lovely evening together.
1: Oof, that's a bit of an age gap.
0: Clearly a very different time when it comes
1: to those ages. The two had gone to dinner, a movie, and a stop at a cafe before deciding to pull over in a quiet area. This was another lover's lane type situation. That's right. So this is something that will be a pattern for the majority of the attacks. Isolated area,
0: distracted potential victims... It's really a goldmine for someone like this. They were chatting and doing what one would expect at a lover's lane when a man approached their vehicle with a flashlight.
1: We don't fully know what happened next, but the crime scene was able to provide somewhat of an idea as to what occurred based on where the blood was found.
0: It is likely that the attacker chose this spot beforehand because he knew a couple would eventually stop there. It was a Saturday night, and this was a pretty popular spot.
1: When he saw Richard and Polly Ann arrive, he waited a little before approaching their car. Along with the flashlight, he also had a gun, a 32 revolver.
0: Like he did with Jimmy during the first attack, he ordered Richard to drop his pants. Unfortunately, this attack would go even further than the first one. Already, we see him escalating. The attacker shot Richard in the back of the head. He then grabbed Pollyann and pulled her out of the car. He shot her as well. He then moved her body back into the vehicle along with Richard.
1: And then he just left. He put the bodies in the car and just took off. He left absolutely no physical evidence and the car would not be discovered until the next morning.
0: A driver saw the car and noticed that there were people in it. At first he assumed that they were both asleep so he decided to check on them. Richard was in the front of the car with his pockets turned inside out and Pollyanne's body was face down in the back seat. The driver called the police and
1: they involved the FBI in the investigation. Around 60 people were questioned regarding the crime, but no one was able to provide any useful information.
0: In an attempt to get someone to talk, they offered a reward in exchange for information. This did get them some leads. Around 100 of them, actually. However, they were all proved to be completely false. And
1: here's something we've talked about a fair bit with other cases. Interestingly enough, they were all unsolved too, I think. The police showed up at the crime scene, but they really didn't do anything to contain it or seal it off from the public. This was a small town, and when people heard about it, they wanted to
0: be all over the murder site, basically. And of course, they completely ruined it. There were so many people walking around this crime scene, and you're right, we do see this a lot. It is so incredibly frustrating. They move things around, they touch the car, and overall just made it so that gathering actual evidence that the killer could have possibly left behind was pretty well impossible. I'm getting uh, Hinterkaifeck Kitchen vibes from this. Very much so. The entire town was curious about what had happened and wanted to see it for themselves. So this wasn't just a few people coming by to see it, it was crowds. And the people were
1: starting to get nervous and you really can't blame them at this point. This wasn't the kind of thing that
0: happened in Texarkana. It was known to be a relatively peaceful place. Like we said, at this point the attacker has developed a pattern. We don't know for sure if he sexually assaulted Polly Ann. For some reason, her body was embalmed and she was buried before that could be determined. Actually, the whole thing with her burial is super weird. They seem to be in a really big hurry
1: to do it, especially considering she was buried with the bullet still in her head.
0: There was actually a lot of confusion regarding the full story of the attack, and many members of the various departments investigating the case disagreed with whether or not she had been assaulted. Is believed that a lot of the information was withheld from the public in an effort to keep people from panicking and thinking that they could be next. Which, we do understand wanting to keep the peace to a certain
1: degree, and hindsight is, of course, always a thing. But at the same time, it seems like the public had every right to think that they could be next, but they had no clue that this attack and
0: the attack on Jimmy and Mary were linked. At this point, the press began to report pretty heavily on the double murder. Newspapers all over town dedicated their front page to the story. They dubbed the attacks the Moonlight Murders.
1: Mary, who was all the way in another state, heard about what had happened and was shocked to see the similarities between this attack and what had
0: happened to her and Jimmy. She made the incredibly brave decision to return to Texarkana to speak with the police and to see if she could help provide any more information. Shockingly enough, they turned her away and they refused to hear what she had to say. So you're probably noticing it by now that this police department was not the greatest.
1: Um, The police would later be criticized for how they handled the investigation, but we'll get into that more in part two. Oh yeah, like prepare to be pissed. Yeah, you're gonna need to like find your happy place Mm -hmm. because like, let me tell you, I was raging. Mm Mm-hmm. It would only take a few weeks for another attack to occur. On April 14th, he would strike again. Betty Jo Booker was only 15 when she went out with her 16-year-old friend Paul Martin. Betty was a saxophone player, and she was playing with a local band. She was very well liked by both her peers and the adults that knew her, and she was considered a popular girl. Paul
0: drove her to Spring Lake Park after her performance. Betty, Joe, and Paul had been friends since they were young, and she was looking forward to hanging out with him for a bit before she had plans to attend a slumber party. The two pulled over in a secluded area to kiss. It was around 1 a.m.
1: Once again, we don't fully know what happened. However, we do know that this attack would be a little bit different from the other two. It's likely that this time he forced the couple to get into his car and took them to a second location.
0: And this just seems like a great time to share this tip. Never, ever, ever, EVER let them take you to a second location. No.
1: Ever. Scream, cry, scratch, do what you gotta do, but do not let them take you. Poop your pants if you have to. I mean... It don't matter. Yeah, it's fine. No one's gonna blame you. Paul Martin was shot four times. The first shot went through his nose. One went into his rib cage, another into his right hand, and the final shot hit him in the neck. He would be found around 6 30 a.m. lying along the edge of a road. Evidence indicated that both of them fought hard to stay alive, but it wasn't enough to save them.
0: He was found by a family who was driving down the road. Evidence would show that he didn't die immediately after he was shot. He crawled to the road in an effort to get help, but help never came. After
1: killing Paul, he drove Betty Jo further down the road. Betty Jo was found approximately five hours after Paul. She had been placed behind a tree with her hand in her pocket. She had been shot once through the chest and once in the face. It appeared to have been done by the same kind of
0: gun as the earlier attacks. Betty's saxophone was not found at the crime scene at this time. Rewards are posted for it in an effort to get it back and we want you to remember that. The saxophone is going to be coming up later again in the story. Luckily, the police actually blocked
1: off the crime scene this time. They were able to identify the couple because Paul had his ID in his pocket, as well as a day planner that indicated he had plans with Betty Jo. And I I don't know why, but Betty Jo's saxophone just like hits me right in the heart for some reason. Like they were just kids, like she had come back from her, her show with her band. They were just teenagers doing teenage shit. Like, my partner and I were both 16 when we first started dating, and he had his own car. He drove a Mustang, which was, like, oh, super heartthrobbing.
0: throbbing. look at you go. Right?
1: But, like, he would come pick me up from things. Like, he would pick me up from work, or, like, we would come home from school together or whatever, like... It really kind of hits hard when you realize that they were just like fifteen and sixteen. Like the this wasn't an old couple or like an adult couple either. Like they were kids. They
0: were just starting their lives out. They were <sighs> like, and they were just. I mean, you know, 15, 16, sixteen. You're just kind of learning about love yeah. and like all and that stuff. And like great how they stuff. had been
1: best friends since they were little. Yeah. Like, fuck, that gets me right. It's in the honestly part, man. this
0: story, especially, is just one of those like happened in a small town like it's very much just like that tragic tragic story because
1: it's the 40s like i'm picturing them like and what they're wearing and like their car and like they you know like they weren't gonna go to drive in movies like
0: yeah and if you look at the victim photos like they were just like such a sweet looking young couple like it's oh it's devastating this guy sucks you guys absolutely the reaction of the public at this time was of disbelief and the loss was felt heavily Both of the victims were very well known and liked. It was honestly devastating for the community. Giant search parties were formed in an effort to find Betty Jo, who, like we said, was found a few hours later. If all this stuff we haven't talked about so far isn't getting you in the feels,
1: she was found by a group of her classmates. What's infuriating is that this still wasn't enough for the police to consider that members of the public
0: could actually be in danger. Which is so incredibly frustrating are the attacks exactly the same no but this was showing that whoever was doing this was escalating he went from attacking two people and leaving them for dead to killing two people to essentially kidnapping a young couple and then killing them in a much more drawn-out attack he's getting more bold and he's getting even more dangerous and i don't understand how alarm bells weren't going off like this isn't even what you would call a red flag of a situation this is a whole ass air raid that is being ignored I don't understand how they could have this happen and think that it wasn't going to happen again. This, like, failure to act is so
1: enraging every time. Like, we see it again and again in all of these crime cases. I would rather have people, law enforcement, be overly cautious, like, kind of go the extra mile and then realize it wasn't necessary after and be like, oh, you know, we overreacted a little bit. Then ignore something have it become a big fucking deal, and then people are hurt and murdered. Like, there's no such thing as
0: being overly cautious when it
1: comes to stuff
0: like this. When it comes to random dude attacking people in the middle of the night, be cautious.
1: Absolutely.
0: Like, they had every right to be aware, they had every right to be afraid, and it's it's so frustrating. Yeah. Whether or not sexual assault was present in this attack was also heavily debated. The police were adamant that Betty Jo was not sexually assaulted, but the FBI and the Texas Rangers were convinced that she was.
1: I wonder if this was some way to, like, not scare people as much, because, like, as much as a young couple has been slaughtered, they're like, oh, it would be too far if we told people she'd been sexually
0: assaulted. Yeah, and I mean, that's something that came out later, because, like, they they really hid a lot from the public originally Mm, and when the public found that out like they were pissed yeah rightfully so oh my god
1: like we said we're going to be talking a lot more about the investigation in the next episode but we're going to be talking a lot about the lack of communication in this investigation and how it
0: could and probably did hinder it the public reaction to this was pure terror like we said people believe that any young couple could be next stores completely sold out of handguns, and paranoia and distrust were at an all-time high in the usually quiet town of Texarkana. Quite a few of the more well-off people who lived there actually just packed
1: up and moved away for a few months or just went on vacation. They had no desire to be in the town until
0: the killer was found. Many of those who stayed armed themselves very heavily Based on the time and location of this case, we can assume that quite a few people in town already had guns. For sure, yeah, absolutely. But those who didn't were now in a hurry to get them.
1: Plus, given the time frame, I'd imagine a decent amount of men in the area at this time had served in World War II. They had come back, and they probably had some decent experience with firearms and guns.
0: People took a lot of extra precautions. A lot of people set up elaborate booby traps at their doors and windows before they went to bed because they were afraid that the killer was going to break into their house in the middle of the night. People stopped going out, especially to Lover's Lane type
1: areas. The entire town was also under a curfew. People were so scared that they abided by it without any issues. The entire town was on edge, waiting for the Texarkana
0: Phantom to strike again. And it wouldn't take long before he did. The fourth and final attack took place just a few weeks later on the evening of May 3rd. This attack is where things change big time. For some reason, this attack is completely unlike the others.
1: The victim's location and even the attack itself are incredibly different. Virgil Starks, aged 37, and his wife Katie Starks, aged 36, were spending a quiet evening in their home. They lived on a large farm northeast of Texarkana in Miller County. The
0: area they lived in was secluded and usually very quiet. They didn't go out a ton to begin with, so the curfew didn't really change too much for them. They had heard the stories of the phantom, but had no reason to believe that they could possibly be in any danger. They weren't a young couple out on a date. They were a married couple that just wanted a peaceful night. Virgil was sitting in the living room reading the
1: Texarkana Gazette and listening to music. Little did he know that someone was literally watching him through their window. Without warning, he was shot two times in the back of the head and died
0: instantly. Katie heard the commotion from another room. She didn't think much of it and just assumed that something had fallen. I mean, because you don't expect something like this to just happen in your home
1: on a quiet night in. Like, she had no reason to believe that it was a gunshot. She probably just heard the glass break from the window and assumed something had fallen and broken.
0: To her horror, she saw her husband's dead body on the floor. She screamed and ran to call the police, but before anyone could answer, the killer shot her two times through the window.
1: Her teeth and jaw were shattered, but she managed to get up and run to another room where she attempted to find a gun. She's crawling on the floor at this point and knows that this man is still outside her house. It's
0: horrifying. Like, bah! Holy shit. Home invasion shit is so scary. I hate it. It's awful. And while Katie was looking for the gun, she heard the back window break and someone coming into the house she decided at that point that she needed to get out of the house immediately if she wanted to survive. She ran out and went to the closest house to
1: them. Unfortunately, no one was home. And I just want to point out, like, they're on a farm in the south. Mm-hmm. I would imagine the next house was not that close. Like, it wasn't just like, oh, she hopped over
0: the fence to the neighbors. Like, she might have had to run, like, half a mile away. She's running, yep. Yeah. She then ran to another neighbor's house. Her teeth are shattered, her jaw is broken. She is in incredible pain at this point and she's running from house to house just looking for help. And honestly, I take it back. This reminds me of The Stranger. Right, yeah. Stranger. It reminds me of the part where Liv Tyler's character is asking why they're attacking them and the killers just say you were home. It's the sheer randomness of this attack. That's what makes it so horrifying. It's the unpredictability of it, right? Because the other attacks occurred in secluded
1: spots while the victims were on a night out. This happened while the victims were in their own home. Like, fuck, that's terrifying. All of these attacks are awful. But home invasions are always on another level. It, it scares me the most because anyone that will enter a home not knowing fully what's awaiting them is unhinged and doesn't give a shit. Like, I'm glad Katie chose to run because you can't reason with monsters like this.
0: As soon as the other neighbor opened the door, she said the words, Virgil's dead, and she collapsed on the ground. The neighbor, a man known as A.V. Prater, obviously seeing the severity of the situation, shot his own gun into the air to get the attention of another neighbor who showed up quickly.
1: The neighbor, Prater, and his entire family drove Katie to the hospital. She was questioned while in the operating room but was not able to provide a ton of information. Everything had happened so
0: quickly. The crime scene was secured and the police were finally willing to admit that this may have been the work of the Phantom oh, finally, like Jesus. (laughs) And it's interesting that this attack is the one that made them consider this because it was so different from the other attacks. So
1: before you guys start wondering if this attack is related to the others, let's think about it for a sec. There was a curfew in effect and people were terrified, so they were actually obeying it. So, so far he's targeted people out on dates, but now there's no people left to target out on dates because everyone's staying home. So if he wants to keep killing, he's gonna have to change things up.
0: And he did. Sheriff W.E. Davis was running the investigation at this point and he would speak with her again four days later. It is an absolute miracle that Katie survived. Right? Like, what happened to her is so terrible, but she kept her composure
1: in a way that most probably couldn't and it saved her life. If she hadn't gone out to find help, it's likely that the Phantom would have made sure that she died as well.
0: And we know we said that they secured the crime scene. It kept the public away, which was great, but the huge amount of police, Texas Rangers, FBI, and other groups of people on the scene absolutely ruined any evidence that could have helped them find out who attacked the Starks.
1: It's pretty clear at this point that the three law enforcement entities are not really working well together. There were so many occasions where they didn't even agree on crucial parts of the case.
0: People were obviously talking about the attack a lot, and there were a lot of rumors, One of them was that Virgil had told multiple people that there was a car parked outside of their house a few nights in a row and that it had scared him. Katie clarified that this was not true it appeared that the attack had been completely at random. Something else that stands out about this attack is
1: that the fact the killer finally left something behind. He made sure to leave absolutely no evidence behind during the first two attacks, but at this point, he was probably feeling extra confident because he didn't get caught and was just, like, wasn't thinking about it.
0: There's a Ted Bundy quote that describes this really well, and as much as we dislike him, it might actually help us understand why the killer left it behind. He said...
1: You learn what you need to kill and take care of the details. It's like changing a tire. The first time, you're careful. By the 30th time, you can't remember where you left the lug wrench.
0: At this point, the Phantom had attacked four times. He was getting comfortable, and sometimes that means getting sloppy. And we say four times
1: because that's the attacks that we know of. This person could have been attacking
0: people prior to this, and we just don't know about it. To be honest, he could have been attacking people in other states, but they may not have been linked due to law enforcement agencies' lack of communication. They also found a ton of footprints in and around
1: the house, but by the time they were noticed, it was unclear whether they belonged to the killer or to one of the many detectives that were on the scene. However, a set of bloody footprints was found.
0: On May the 9th, the Texarkana Gazette published their first colour photograph ever. It was a photo of the flashlight that the Phantom had left behind. Upon further investigation,
1: it appeared that a different kind of gun was used during this attack. Police found evidence of an automatic rifle rather than a pistol, but at this point, so many random attacks had happened in their otherwise quiet town that they had no reason but to believe that this was all the work of one person.
0: This didn't help with the paranoia that the citizens of Texarkana felt, and it led to full-blown hysteria. People were absolutely terrified that they could be next. It was one thing to think that the killer was just attacking people on Lover's Lane type areas. It was completely different to think that anyone could be attacked in their home at any given moment. And keep in mind that it isn't like the public had been made aware that there was a link early on. People were
1: completely shocked, especially considering that all this happened over the course of just a few months. The first attack had been on February 22nd, and the Starks were attacked in early May.
0: Further rewards for information were posted by various departments and the father of Virgil Starks even offered a reward himself for any information that would help lead to the capture of his son's killer.
1: Despite the huge amount of attention that this case received, the killer was never found. The attacks appeared to stop and as time went on, a sense of safety and security returned to Texarkana and eventually people just seemed to move on. Officially, this case has never been solved. Now, we say officially, but there are definitely some theories that stand out, and we're going to talk about them next week in part two of the series.
0: So, that was honestly just one of those stories that genuinely scares you. This is a real-life horror movie. The thing is, with these unsolved murders, is that there's so much that you're left with that makes you feel just
1: incredibly frustrated. Looking back, there's a lot that could have been done differently, and it really makes you
0: wonder if this case would have been solved if they had. Next week, we're going to talk more about the investigation and some of the people who played an important role in it. We're also going to go over the main suspects of the case, and at the end of it, we're going to share our own theories about who we think it could have been.
1: Because while this case is unsolved, there are many that do believe the killer has long since been
0: identified. And this was 76 years ago this year. Needless to say that whoever was doing this is long gone now, but the families of these victims still deserve closure even after all these years. And I, like, we really hope that someday they they get it. The suspect list in this case is really something else, and we're really excited to go over it with you.
1: Until then, make sure you don't miss out on the Grim Curriculum news by following us on Instagram at The Grim
0: Curriculum and Grim Curriculum on Twitter. You can also find us on social media. I'm Dina V on Twitch, Dina V IG on Instagram, and Dina V Tweets on Twitter. And I'm Ominous underscore Walrus on Twitter and Ominous Walrus on Instagram. Join us every Saturday for a new episode, and we also do a live premiere on YouTube at 12 p.m. MST so come hang out with us and discuss the case in real time. So please make sure you subscribe to us on YouTube. Go. Do it now. Thanks for listening. This has been The The Grim Grim curriculum. Curriculum.